This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. This week, as I was really, actually the last month, as I was getting ready for this sermon, I get a month, Ted gets a week. So you can see the learning curve there. Um, but this week, as I was getting ready for this sermon, I, I got the chance to listen to a, a series of sermons from Tim Keller, who a lot of you know and listen to. And uh, I'm a young guy, I haven't preached very often. I, I like turning to older men to listen to what they say and how they use the text and how it's relevant to their churches and how it can be relevant to ours. Well, as I listened to the sermon series, it was five sermons. I get one, <laughs> but it was five. And, uh, and as I listened to them, the first one was normal. You know, it was normal Tim Keller-like, Redeemer-like. It was very gospel-centered, good sermon. The second one, it was weird. It was dead. It was forced. It was, it was kind of dry. And it was nothing like I'd listened to before from them. And then I listened to the third one. The third one was amazing. 
It was a sermon that I would call one of my tops, the way it moved inside me personally and the way it drew me out to believe God and trust God. I went and looked at the dates of those sermons. Let me tell, tell you what they are. First sermon, normal one, September 9th, 2001. Second sermon, weird sermon, weird, dry, dead, September 23rd, 2001. Third sermon, September 30th, 2001. September 9th, business as usual. September 11th, one of the most horrific, traumatic days this country and New York City has ever seen. September 16th, September 23rd, what do we do? How, how, do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we go back? How, how is life going to go forward with all of this that's just happened? September 11th to September 23rd was the hardest day, some of the hardest days we've ever seen, that we've ever dealt with. And then how do you do September 23rd? Is it business as usual? Do we go back to normal? I haven't asked him, but if he were here, I would ask him, how, how, did, you, how did you move forward? How, did, did you think the 23rd, you just kind of jumped back into it? Is that why it was dry? Is that why it was hard? September 30th, he actually answers it in the sermon. He stops, he pauses, and he says, listen, yesterday is gone. Normal will never be here again, Ever. We will never go back to normal. The country we thought we knew, the safe, dominant, unconquerable country, it's gone. So when will we return back to normal? When when can we move forward? Never. Never. Yesterday's faith, yesterday's power, yesterday's gospel for you doesn't help today. We have to believe today. But you know, normal is how life works. Normal is what we know. Normal is safe. Normal is, is, is measurable. It's what life's like every day. We expect our spouses, our friends, and everything just to be normal when we wake up. That's how we deal with a life that we know we can't really manage. We just try to make it normal. But it doesn't work like that. You know, right now I'm going through a spell of that in my own life. I worked for Campus Outreach for seven years. And, uh, you know, I felt like God said, go to seminary. Go to Nineveh. No, go to seminary. Go, go there. Um, learn. Go into the pastorate. And this job kind of worked out. It was, it was great. You know, it's a year later now. And the novelty, the newness, is, is gone. And the hardships that come with a new job and a new life and all the things, the weight and the burdens that come with that, you know, I want to I go back. I want what worked with CO to work now. I want my prayer life that was just enough back then to be enough right now. I want my gifts that, that worked then and, you know, were, were halfway useful then to work now. And it, it's not the same. Today, I, I need new faith. I need new power. I need new life in me if, if I'm going to move forward. You know, God loves me too much and he loves you too much to let you live off yesterday's faith. And that's, that's where we come to our text today. Jonah, business as usual. He's Israel's prophet. God comes to him like he always does. It's normal for God to come. He's the one that spoke for God to his people. God comes to him. But the word he gives him this time is different. If he obeys God today, it changes everything. Let's pray. God, we need you this morning. 
I especially need you to make sense of this text and to, and to work out these issues in my own life. But God, I pray for, for doses of your spirit that you would meet us here in this text, that you would, you would change our hearts, that you would calm us, give us peace, and you would teach us exactly what we need to hear from this word. We need you, Holy Spirit, and so we ask for your presence. We're gathered in your name, and we believe that you'll come. And so we look forward to hearing from you. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning, from the story, we're going we're gonna to get three things. We're going to get a fleeing prophet, a pursuing God, and a greater Jonah. That's what the text is going to give us. So let's jump right in. A fleeing prophet. Um, I, you know, I actually didn't know this. I'd, I'd read it before, but I never noticed it. But 2 Kings 14 actually gives us the context of Jonah's life. Let me read it to you. It's from chapter 14, 23 through 27. It says, In the 15th year of Amazah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil king. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So Jonah, in the time of a very wicked king, was God's prophet for Israel. And in this time, God was giving Israel back their land at the word of Jonah. Jonah was a very successful minister, very successful. He would hear from God, he would tell the king what to do, and they took their land back. The only weird thing that's going on here is God promises in Deuteronomy, if you, when you move into the land, if you obey me, things will go well. If you disobey, you lose. Jonah had to know this. He's the one that knew the word better than anybody as God's prophet. He had to feel this inconsistency among, among Israel. And so he's successful. Things are going well. But they're, they're disobeying and they're not perishing. So now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And here we have our context. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here's the call. God comes to Jonah, business as usual, and gives him a new word. Up to this point, he has success. Up to this point, the word of the Lord is normal. Up to this point, no tension. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. Here the tension begins. Guys, and this is the same tension we all experience. It's when the word of the Lord, the Lord comes in our lives. We see it, we read it, we know it, but it conflicts with us. It meets us in a place where that, that seems to be off limits to us. If Jonah is going to obey God, everything changes. You know, he probably started thinking, well, you know, Israel's being disobedient. God's sending me a prophet to Nineveh. Why would God send a prophet anywhere? Well, God sends a prophet to tell them their sins so that what? They'll repent. God's compassionate. I know he is. He's going to let them repent. And we're being disobedient. Maybe God's going to use Nineveh. Maybe he's going to use Assyria and not us. At this time, Nineveh was the capital of, of Assyria. 
Assyria is the most powerful nation on earth, and they're the most brutal nation to ever live up to this point. They cut people's hands off. They, they did all this horrific stuff, and Jonah knew about it. Jonah didn't want to go. But Jonah didn't want to go not because he was afraid it would happen to him. He didn't want to go because they don't deserve it. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve for you to do that. I'm going to Tarshish. I know what's better. So Jonah flees. He doesn't like what he sees and he flees. Instead of obeying, instead of praying, instead of talking it out, he he leaves. He runs. See, Jonah had a normal. He had a normal. This is what normal looked like for him. And when God's word came in conflict with his normal, not anymore. No, no, not. I can't obey you anymore, God. He leaves. As soon as the status quo changes and it's no longer in his favor or Israel's favor, he's out. So what does this tell us about Jonah's obedience? What does it mean about the times he did obey? Here's what it tells us. It means that that Jonah obeyed to get his agenda fulfilled by God. He fulfilled, he, he obeyed when it, when it worked for him. He obeyed when it was good for Israel. He obeyed when it didn't cross him. But as soon as it crosses him, he's gone. He used God to get what he needed. He used God to get his agenda. And as soon as his agenda is not met anymore, he's gone. You know, this is the same as our parents, Adam and Eve. You remember the story? They're in the garden, don't, treat, don't eat from this tree. What do they do? They eat the tree. They eat right from it. Why? Because Satan comes into the garden, what does he tell them? He says, God's not for you. God doesn't want your best. He doesn't have your best in mind. He doesn't love you. His word can't be good. He, he's trying to make you withhold. You should disobey him. Now we get to Jonah. Jonah's real issue is he doesn't trust God. God God's not being good. This, this goes against what I feel is right for me and for Israel. He can't be good, so he runs. God is not the real focus of his life. His agenda is. And God is pointing that out by crossing him. You know, for us, this looks different. Most of you don't get on a boat and go to Tarshish, do you? You don't, you don't just run. You don't physically run away like Jonah did. But what does it look like for us? Um, you know, how do we do this? You know, some of us read the Word. We go to it. We read it. And like this week in 1 Timothy, it says lots of hard things to us. If you're going to be an overseer in your life, if you're going to be overseer, you can't love money. You know, we read something like that, and we go, oh, I don't love money. Instead of sitting down and asking ourselves, wait, do I, do I love money? Why do I work 70 hours? Why do, why do I never see my family? Why, you know, why do I, I feel like I have to have this much money for this standard of living? Maybe I do love money. Maybe I do. Or with dating for you. Maybe you're single and you're dating. And God says, don't, don't date an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbeliever. And those things in your life, they, they're not convenient. The guy or the girl that just happens to be there, they're not like you, but maybe you can save them. But the Bible clearly says this. It clearly says these things. And it's like, oh, this one's just not negotiable. I just can't give in here. And so we take the word and we put it down. And we, we, we read it, and we just kind of go on with life. And you know, the way you can really tell this is think about the passion in your life. Are you less passionate today than you were a few years ago about the Lord? Are you, is the passion you have kind of been dried out? Maybe it's because somewhere along the line, God crossed you. Maybe he brought a word into your life that you didn't like. 
and it didn't go well with what you wanted. And so you decided to just put them down. And you still go to church. You still read your Bible occasionally. And you, 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 you go, you know, and you hang out with community, but it's dry, you know? And, or the passion in it is just, it's just another form of life for you. It's just one of the pieces of pie in your life. And so you're not real passionate about God or his church or serving. Is that true for you? Ask yourself about your passion. What about relationships? You know, maybe you have a spouse that's really wronged you. They've hurt you. And God tells you to seek reconciliation, to pursue it, to run after it, to seek forgiveness. But no, they have to pay. I'm hurt. I'm hurt, God. Don't you see this? Don't you see it, people? I'm, I'm hurting here. And, maybe, you know, and God says, seek reconciliation. But no, not right now. I can't do that. I'm hurt. So we take his word and we move it to the side. You know, the one I see in my life is parenting. When my daughter's doing really well, I love her really well. I feel like I do. I read to her. I play with her. I kick the ball with her. I'm tired. I come home. I still do those things. But when she disobeys me, especially in public, it really offends me. I get angry at her. And I don't parent her the way I parented her when, when she was obeying me. You know why? She, she's, she's messed up my agenda. My agenda is to have all of life controlled and life to be as comfortable as possible. And so when she doesn't fit my agenda, I change on her. I'm angry at her. I'm trying to intimidate her now because she doesn't fit in line with me. This says to love her, to train up her up in the way she should go. And I, instead of being about her, I'm about me and my agenda. I parent her for me and not for her. You know, Jonah teaches us that even the most spiritual people, he, right? Isn't he the most spiritual man, most likely? The most religious man in Israel? And he is the one who doesn't get it. In the story, you're going to see the sailors get it, Ninevites get it. He doesn't get it. He teaches us that we're all, everyone in this room, are, are prone to this. We're prone to have this agenda and have this relationship with God. And as soon as he crosses us, we abandon him. See, um, when Jonah runs, he actually tells us why he does it. It's not a secret. It's in chapter 4. Chapter 3, you remember the whale spits him out? We didn't read this, but chapter 3, God comes back to Jonah. He says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. This time, what does Jonah do? He obeys. He goes. He's like, wow, Jonah, he's getting it now. And he goes to Nineveh, and he has this terrible sermon. Awful. He says, in 40 days, and, and your country will be destroyed, or Nineveh will be destroyed, and everybody repents. Everybody. The king, everybody. And you're like, seriously? <laughs> the, you know, the, the success he had in Israel, it just flowed over into Nineveh. And you expect the book to end. You expect to go, wow, look what God has done. But then chapter 4 comes. Listen to what he says in chapter 4. This is Jonah's response. Verse 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see that those agendas, that sin deep down inside of us, it doesn't so easily go away. You can get swallowed by a well and it still not leave you. It's it's in there. And so what does God do? What does he do? You know, Jonah thought he was running. He thought thought if he obeyed God, this equaled chaos for him. And then he ran away. And what did he find? More chaos. Greater chaos. 
more hardship. And now Jonah's angry. He's angry at a gracious God. You know the irony of it all? <laughs> is He's angry because God is gracious, forgiving, slow to anger. The very thing Jonah needs most right now is for God to be those things, and he's angry at him for being it. The very thing he needs, he's angry about. You know, some of us today, you're mad at God. You're mad because he won't cooperate with your agenda. He won't cooperate with it. He, he won't have it. He won't let you have exactly what you want. It seems it's a carrot on a stick for you. And we're mad. He has the power. You're God. I've said that at red lights. I'm late. You're God. You could make it green for me. You could do that, but you won't do it. Why? He just won't cooperate. He's not about our agendas as much as he's about loving us and pursuing us. So what does he do? How does he respond to our anger? How does he respond to this, this consistent anger, this hurt? You know, we see it in Jonah's name. You know what the name Jonah means? It means silly dove. It's what God called Israel sometimes. It's just, it means stupid, basically. He's just a silly dove. But son of Amittai, Amittai means my faithfulness. He's a silly dove that's the son of my faithfulness. And all of his running and all of his hiding and all of his fling, he's the son of the faithful one. And so what does God do? He pursues him. Point two, our God pursues. When Jonah runs, God sends a storm. When you run, guess what he's going to send? A storm. He's going to send it right into our lives. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. There the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, and it lightened it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. You know, a common metaphor in the scripture for hardships is the storm. A common metaphor in our lives today, people say, man, I just went through some storms. We know, we know what they mean. It means they just went through some hardships, some real hard times in their lives. I looked up storms, Wikipedia, and it says this, storms are created when a center of low pressure develops with a system of high pressure surrounding it. That's a storm. So when our low pressure normal, normal is low pressure for us, has a high, high pressure abnormal come around it, they collide and it creates this bad storm. That's, that's life for us. When our normal is interrupted, when this pressure comes around us, it, it gets at us. It's, it begins to cut away at what we might have thought was reality and show us the real underneath If you know the scriptures, God sends storms into all of his children's life, lives. He sends storms all the time into his people. And you also know that it's not just disobedience. Look at Job. God sends a terrible storm into Job's life. And it was to refine Job, to love Job. And God sends a storm into Jonah's life. He's being disobedient. He's running from him. And this storm is meant to come and collide with what he thinks is right, what his agenda really is. It's, it's, it's made to come there and meet him there. So in his love, he sends out a storm. And they're here to discipline us, to reveal things about ourselves that we just don't see in the normal of life, and to reveal things about God that we just don't really know, that we can't really know without the storm. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, I see storms in my life and I haven't done much. God is loving you. God is loving you. God is trying to reveal something to you. 
Um, they, they have a way of cutting back the fake you and revealing the real you. I was talking to a campus outreach student about his time on project here. He says, it's kind of getting hard. You know, it's kind of getting old even. I remember that. I used to go on these projects. And this is about the time the character begins to come out on a project. You're living with three to four other people in your room. They start eating your food. <laughs> you know, they're, uh, they're doing things you don't like. They're different than you, right? And your character begins to really come out week three, week five, six, and seven. And you really get to see who you are. It's a storm catered just for that. It's to, to show you your heart and, and to, to help you see those things. Um, so up to this point in the book of Jonah, he, he hasn't prayed. He hasn't turned to God. He hasn't done any of that. And God get, brings this storm to get his attention. And, and when storms come, we all, the control we thought we had, we realize we weren't in control after all. Listen to this letter. It's from the pastors of Redeemer to their congregation right after 9-11. And he quotes uh, C.S. Lewis in here. It's really good. It says, If you have not directly lost a loved one, but rather find yourself dazed, shaken, and fearful, God is saying to you, wake up to your need for me and wake up to what real security is. No military power or technology or human factor can make you safe. Only in the very center of my will is there any safety. You don't have the human ability to control things. You need me. C.S. Lewis pointed out that times of war or disaster don't really increase the amount of misery and death in the world, but they concentrate it and wake us up from our illusion that life is manageable. Here's his quote. If we had foolish hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city, satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned. And not a moment too soon. In ordinary times, only the wise realize realize it. Now in wartime, the stupid of us knows it. Guys, no offense, but we're so stupid, we need a storm. We don't get it. We're, we're so about our agendas. They're so ingrained in us. We need a storm. And the most loving thing God can do is send a storm. It's to really throw it at you and, 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 and maybe even hurt you. So it's his way of pursuing our hearts. Now look at the sailors. What do they do when normal changes? They're sailors, Right? And a big, a big storm comes. You know, they, they know how to deal with storms. They're sailors. But now this massive storm comes. What do they do? They turn to God. And most of the time you see these two responses in people. Either right now you have no prayer life, no real walk with God, and you have hardships that come in your life, and that's when you turn to God. Is that you? That God has to bring those things in to shake you up and show you? Well, if that is you, turn to him. He's trying to get your attention. Turn to him. Fall in love with him. Listen to him. Or maybe you're like Jonah. Maybe you have that strong walk with God. You go to church, you pray, you love your children well, but when hard times come, he's the first thing to go. You stop spending time with him, you stop praying, and you try to figure life out. Storms make us crazy, literally. Did you hear about that, the football players that were out fishing 50 miles off the coast in Florida? They're out there and um, they're fishing and the water's starting to get rough. The storms start coming in and the, the, way, the waves are like 15 feet, something like that. It's unbelievable. And they're, they're scared, but their anchor's stuck. It's stuck on some coral reef. They can't get it out. The boat capsizes in 60-degree water. They all have life jackets. They're right there next to the boat. This is one by, this one person made it. And this is what he tells us. So it's true is what he says. 
He had, all of them have life jackets. They're all holding on to the boat. Hours go by. One of them starts to go crazy. He starts to flail his arms. He starts to punch and go crazy. And then he just, he gives up. He takes his life jacket up and he goes underwater and they never see him again. Another one does the same thing. The next one, see, he, he thinks he sees a boat or land or something and he takes his off because it's tight and he starts swimming. The last one stays there with his life jacket on and he clings to the boat and is rescued a little while later. And you're like, man, what, what were they thinking? That's, that's the effect storms can have on your life. They, they, they get in your mind, and if you don't have resources, if you don't understand them, if you don't know them to be God's love, you take your life jacket off. You take your life support off, and you go about it yourself. They can crush you if you don't understand them, if you don't know them, if you don't know Christ in them. So storms reveal to us where, what we trust in. When they come, you're going to automatically default with what you trust in. When storms come in my life, it's me. I trust my word. I trust my abilities, my gifts. And when they come, I see that because I don't pray. I don't ask God for help. So if you're in one of these places where you're cold and dispassionate and you don't really desire God anymore, you need to come to grips that there's a storm on the horizon for you. It's coming because God loves you. And maybe right now you're in this other place where you're in the storm. The storms, it's flailing all around you. And it's hard to even make sense of what's right and what's wrong. You need to see that maybe somewhere, maybe you crossed them. And maybe this is how he's showing you his love. So stop. You know what I love about the scripture? They have these weird places like Jonah in the well. Like, what? Why? Why do you, why do you go in a well? God, why did you blind Paul? And why do you do these weird things? You know, I don't know why he did it. He hasn't told me. But I just wonder if the only thing Jonah can do in that well what, is think. It's, I'm sure it's hot and it stinks. And he has very little room to do anything. But now he has to stop. He has to think. And that's where you are. Maybe the storm's around. You have to stop and think. What is God doing? What is he saying? What is he trying to reveal to me? And the most loving thing he can do is show you that you're, you're trusting in a Savior that won't save you. It, it, won't, it won't come through for you. And how does he do that? He points us to what will, and that's the greater Jonah. In this passage, this passage makes us long for a greater Jonah. How? Jonah fled from the presence. He's trying to go as far away as possible. He's going to Tarshish. He's numb in the storm. He's still not praying. He's, God's not getting his attention here. So he's thrown over. He's eaten by a well. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go back. He's, th- he's uh, fearful. Um, the sailors are fearful. They're like, this is going to cost us our lives. They go to him and they, they figure out it's him by casting lots. And Jonah, in verse 11, they ask him, they say, what, what can we do to make it go away? How can we stop the storm? And Jonah says, throw me in. Now, you, you, you could think, is he just being noble here? Is, you know, maybe. Is it, is it that, um, you know, he really cares about the sailors? I don't know, it doesn't tell us. But we think, we think that he at least knew. The commentators say he at least knew that they, it wasn't their fault. And if he's off the boat, they're saved. And so that's what happens. They throw him in. What, what is the author trying to teach us? What is the author of Jonah trying to teach us and the sailors? And this is some really good stuff I got from com- a few commentaries and, and the talks. And, and this passage begins with fear in verse 5. The middle is fear in verse 10. In the end, verse 16, it ends with fear. So what's it about? Fear. 
It's trying to tell us something about fear. So at the beginning, there's a storm. What does it say about the sailors? They're afraid. In the middle, verse 10, there's a big storm. And so what? They're exceedingly afraid. They're, they're big fear here. And then the last one, no storm. No fear, right? But that's not what it says. It says no storm, and they exceedingly feared Yahweh. They use the Lord's personal name here, Yahweh. They feared the Lord here. So what is this saying? What is he trying to say? What do the sailors teach us here? I don't know how, but in some small, strange way, the sacrifice of Jonah and how God accepted it and how it saved them transforms them. And it teaches them the fear of the Lord. It says that they feared the Lord. Now, we've been in Proverbs. And and Ted started the sermon series with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His steadfast love and his faithfulness is the beginning of wisdom. The sailors go from being just afraid to fearing the Lord. And you say, wait a second, okay, life is back to normal for the sailors now. It's normal. The, the ship, the, the storm's gone, they're sailing, no Jonah anymore, they can't talk to him. It's normal. But is it normal? Listen to this verse, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Do you see this? The sailors have a new normal. They now have a new courage, a new faith, a new God. Before they're calling on any God they can. Before they're asking Jonah to call on a God. Now they're calling on the Lord. And they sacrifice to Yahweh. And now they make vows. Their lives will be different based on these vows. Based on the sacrifice they've seen. That's what we get from here. That's what we get from the sailors. That there is a, there is a Savior there for them. And, and they, they learn the fear of the Lord in the storm. But you know that it doesn't help us. It, it helped them in the moment. It can't save them from their sin. And so this, even the sailors, even the situation, they make us long for a greater Jonah. There's got to be something greater. Because for them to ultimately be saved, there, there had to be a greater Jonah. And for us to be saved, there must be a greater Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed by a whale when he should have died for his disobedience. And here's what we learn from Jonah. He, leave there, he leaves there seemingly to obey, and he's angry. He's mad. And the book ends with Nineveh's repentance, the sailors' repentance, possibly. And we don't know about Jonah. It never tells us. Go read it for yourself today. It's a very peculiar ending. And what every commentator I read and every preacher I listened to said is it doesn't end because it can't end. You know why? The book is not about Jonah. The book ultimately isn't about Jonah. It's actually about you. It's about me. And this is a literary device the author used where he doesn't, he doesn't give you the, the, the mystery's ending. He doesn't put the puzzle together for you because it won't come together until we ask ourselves, what, what, how much Jonah is in us? Where do we flee? Where do we turn? How do we do these same things? That's the only way it ends. It's only if you wrestle with those things. Only if you ask yourself those questions. God crosses our agenda and throws us in the storm. He throws us in a massive storm. And that catches everyone in this room. If you're at the crossroads with this tension and God is asking you to do something that's contrary to what you want to do, stop. Stop and know that he can be trusted. He can be trusted because there is a greater Jonah. There's a greater one. 
And it's Jesus. Jesus gives us why we can trust him. Listen to his words. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is in Matthew chapter 12. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now listen to this last thing. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Jesus' words, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. We can know that we can trust God. When he comes with a word that crosses us, we can trust him because there's a greater Jonah. We can trust him because he sent his son, Jesus, who was in, earth, who was in heaven, who had a normal. His normal was his relationship with his father, the relationship with the Holy Spirit, whom he loved. The normal, he left and he entered into the abnormal. He entered into the chaos. He entered into the storm, the ultimate cosmic storm, all the way to hell, like Jonah went in the belly. And the difference in the stories, in Jonah's story, the guilty is thrown in so the innocent can live. In Jesus' story, the innocent is thrown in so the guilty can live. That's how you can trust him. He was innocent, yet he died for us. We can trust him that his word is good and that he wants our best because he came and did those things. And, and what if you're in the storm? How can you know that he's, not, it's not, he's just trying to kill you and judge you? Because when Jesus entered the storm, he was judged for you. He was judged in the storm. He experienced the most horrible storm. And the father wasn't there. When he was thrown in, the well didn't rescue him. It wasn't there for him. And so now when you're thrown in the storm, you know it it can't kill you. It can't take you out. It can't end you because it ended him. It, It can only be to refine you. It can only be to love you. That's the message of Jonah. That's the sign of Jonah. That's the greater Jonah. Let us pray. God, like Jonah, we believe, we believe from chapter 2, salvation belongs to you. Only in you is life. Only in you is there freedom. Only in you is there hope. And, and God, many of us are angry at you. We're so mad because you, you just won't cooperate. You won't get in line with what we need, what we think we need, and what we think we want. But thank you, God, as we learn here, that you are, you are about loving us. And so I pray that you would continue to send storms. That as hard as that prayer is, that you would send storms into our lives and that you would turn us from these things that we feed on and these, these heart idols and turn us to you, the only thing that can save. Would you rescue us? Would you deal with us through this book of Jonah the rest of this week? Pray in your name. Amen.